Miami is great because I think it really strikes the right balance between, you know, the academic and learning and engaging with other people, but also, you know, the Midwestern values and the sociability that uh, all Miamians seem to have where they're able to engage with all sorts of socioeconomic classes uh, of people, I think is really what sets Miami apart. It's really the right balance. It's not too academic and it's not too social and it's certainly driven and the combination of all that i think is what makes miami's formula for success as evidenced by all the tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of successful miamians out there hey guys welcome back to me on high street david schwab here jeff cadlick joins me today jeff is a longtime dear friend our wives are even housemates at miami miami mergers for both of us and Jeff and I even today sit together on Miami's entrepreneurship board. Our conversation weaves between many subjects from him walking onto campus for the first time as a high school student, as his brother was accepted into Miami. And he knew right then he had to get his acting gear to get accepted into Oxford and how that goal setting has helped him even today. The importance of Lux in Moscow and traveling in college and the adventure and how that's helped his entrepreneurial spirit. And then we touch on Dr. Altman and the importance Dr. Altman was to him then and now. And if you didn't know, the entrepreneurship program at Miami has been renamed the John Altman Entrepreneurship Program just this past month. And how he's taken all of that into a 25 year business and financial career and finance business and leading a private equity firm in Cleveland for the past 15 years. Jeff's a great man with many talents. Hope you guys enjoy the pod. I followed a bunch of friends that said that they were going to Luxembourg and uh, it didn't even really occur to me that that was even a possibility. I just wasn't thinking big enough. And so it, it wasn't until after I was in Luxembourg that I saw that Moscow was a part of the program and didn't even really appreciate how significant in the history of you know Russia and the Soviet Union and Moscow at that point in time was because it was just a couple years after the fall of the wall and uh, you know a lot of the stuff that you read about that was going on at that time and, and most recently in a book called Red Notice where there's early formations of a stock market and and a democracy and uh, commerce and capital markets. It was just a crazy time. Um, but the society really hadn't evolved it in Moscow at all. I mean, it was still, um, you know, people's thought processes were still very much that communistic uh, Eastern Bloc thought process where uh, nobody really owned anything. Uh, and so, Nobody mowed the lawn, let's say, and there was no uh, advertising at all. And it was it was very, very foreign to a young kid from Western culture that had traveled out of the United States much. But, you know, when you're that young, it's also really exciting. And, uh, you, you know, the Lux program uh, and Moscow in particular just left a huge impression on my life and uh, have really appreciated uh, what travel means uh, and just engaging other cultures ever since. 
with you. So when you talk about, and everyone I've talked to has said the same thing about Lux. No one has regretted it. Everyone has talked about the benefits and others who have talked about traveling to cultures where they picked up a second language and really understand and learn it, uh, continue to raise their hand to say the importance of it. What is it about that travel and that experience and picking up the culture that you really um, take to heart and has helped you the last 30 years? You know, for me, honestly, it was just kind of the sense of adventure. I think a lot of people uh, look at those opportunities and they either look at it as an opportunity or they look at it as a lot of risk. And I think anybody that goes to the Luxembourg program is attracted to it, views it as a adventure. And not only did it expose me to, you know, different cultures, uh, but it also really just gave me that sense that, you know, I could do more. Uh, it gave me a wider view on, on what I was kind of capable of and got me thinking out of, you know, just Oxford or Ohio or the United States. And, and that is one of the themes I think that I've really taken from that and has made me more of an entrepreneur than I really ever thought I was going to be was because I liked that adventure. And, uh, you, you know, when you're driving around the United States and you're thinking, well, do we turn north to Ohio or south to uh, Mississippi is just not as quite as exciting as if you say, let's go north to Belgium or south to Italy. Uh, they're just it's um, just very, very exciting. And that that vibe or that feel or that mojo just never left me after I participated in a Luxembourg program. And going to Lux, in your mind, what were you thinking you were going to do when school ended and coming home from Lux? What did you think you were going to be doing when school ended? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Uh, I'd have to think about that. Uh, again, I, I think that... Um, I just was thinking small time uh, when yeah. I was going. So, you know, my dad had worked for U.S. Steel for 40 years, and I just figured that I was probably going to work for a corporate entity. Um, and not that there's anything wrong with that. My dad did very well, and many people do. Uh, but I realized that with that sense of adventure, uh, there it just opened up a world of different thoughts about what I wanted to do. Uh, one of the things that we did when we were in Moscow is we were asked to write a business plan. And I wrote a business plan around a, a company that I imagined called Moscow Cellular. Uh, at that time, you know, the, there was no, I mean, cellular, even in the United States is still pretty early stages, but it certainly was there. And I wrote a business plan about really kind of giving away phone books and the phones and, um, you know, just charging for the service, which I wished I would have followed up on that whole thing. I'd probably be worth a lot more money than the end of the day. And maybe I didn't have the guts to stick around to see it through. But, um, you know, that, again, it just kind of really just exposed me to think about different things and think not really internationally uh, as much as it was just to think uh, outside the box more than I ever had. And uh, it was uh, a, a terrific experience. And so what was the first job out of Miami? Well, it was more corporate. It was, yeah. uh, I went to work for uh, LaSalle National Bank, uh, which was a, a metro Chicago bank. 
And I think they saw in me, which I didn't even realize at that time, was that I hustled and I was maybe not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I was going to work hard and I could engage with all types of people and I could learn fast. And, and, uh, you know, the reason I say that is because LaSalle really didn't give you uh, customers or a territory. They just said, go out and find deals and opportunities. And, and that's what I turned out. I was good at. Um, and, and so, uh, it was a great mentoring environment. It was a great place to start your career because you were exposed to a lot. Uh, and, but you were still in high finance cause you were in Chicago, which is, uh, you know, a big time money center town. And from there and then business school and, uh, were you always, and we'll get to evolution capital partners here in a second, but did you always have the mindset, even though you did start corporate, that you were going to have your own business, that you were going to just go figure it out at some point? No, I mean, not to use a, a funny word, but there was an evolution there. I think that I was exposed to private equity for the very first time when I was at LaSalle. And, um, and I just worked very, very hard and I, uh, uh, saw what, what private equity is all about. And I, as a lot of young people were at that time was attracted to the industry and, and really what it offered in terms of understanding a business and really being heavily involved and certainly the, the financial rewards that, that are associated with it. But, uh, they were always just extremely well prepared. I mean, they had really thought through and and uh, really led every meeting. I think at a very instinctual level, that was what was most appealing to me was that they just were ready uh, for these meetings and they were ready for anything that was going to be asked of them. And I think that they were so impressive. That's really what you know caught my attention. Uh, as far as entrepreneurship and owning my own entity, I think that really came later. And I feel like I share a lot of the traits that other small business and entrepreneurs do, which is not only that you think that you can do it better and in your own way, but that you really don't want anybody else to control your future. Uh, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and that's really this common theme that I see in all of these people it, is that not only do they feel like that they can do better and they don't want anybody controlling their upside, but they're really willing to live the life that you need to live uh, to make it happen. And it's not only you know, writing checks in the financial engagement, but it's also a lifestyle change. I mean, my balance sheet for the Catholic family is the same balance sheet for Evolution Capital Partners. I mean, it's just one and the same because you, you live it. And sometimes if you're lucky and you're really successful, uh, the company becomes its own independent organization because it's thrived over time and, and been successful and people recognize it for, for what it is. Okay, go go deeper there for me on the that uh, your own company balance sheet and your family balance sheet. Are, are you suggesting because it's your business, kind of the money is all in the same, or that when you have your own business, it's a 
it's a 24 seven job like a family is or yeah, it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think that, uh, when I talk about lifestyle, you you know, you as a small business owner, entrepreneur, you, you can never stop moving. If you get sick, the business stops. You know, if you go on vacation, the business stops at a certain level at its earlier phases. You know, that's certainly the case as it evolves and grows and you have people that, you know, can run the business while you're gone or you're sick, you know, that's that next level. Uh, I was also talking about the fact that, you know, when you personally guarantee the debts of the organization or that you get paid only after everybody else gets paid uh, is, is really where the financial part of it it comes in where I certainly benefit on the upside when we have good months and years and that sort of thing. And I make a lot of money, but if we have a bad year and uh, times are more difficult, uh, I make sure everybody else gets paid before I get paid. And, and sometimes that means I really got to be scraping pennies together. Mm. All right. And I want, I want to dig in a second on Miami because you and I have 25 years of friendships and our wives are close friends and, and we do a lot of things together still at school, but keep, keep going with evolution capital partners here for a second on your business now and the private equity class of investment, uh, how you guys narrowed in on the thesis of the types of companies that you want to invest in and in coming up with that thesis, was it based that there was an opening and a gap in the marketplace or that particular uh, size of company and uh, margin of company that you guys best felt like you could uh, accelerate their growth and ultimately sell? You know, it was really uh, a combination of the two, you know, taken from my first exposure to LaSalle uh, in private equity, I um, moved on to Prudential Capital Group, where I was actually able to co-invest in larger private equity deals. So I wasn't leading them, but I could kind of follow along and see the models and listen in and, and learn and also participate with, with Prudential's capital. And ultimately I went to work for a larger, more institutionalized private equity fund that was investing in larger businesses that maybe had 50 to 200 million of, of revenue. And I remember the uh, founder of that business saying that, you know, they didn't want to invest in businesses maybe under 20 or 25 million of revenue because they just didn't have the infrastructure or professionalization necessary to be successful. And that was more than that private equity funds business model was willing to to do. I mean, it was really governance, it was M&A support, it was financial support and so on and so forth, not really getting into the guts of the business. And while I was there, I just kept seeing these smaller opportunities that I thought were good businesses and had done enough that deserve support, but really nobody was focusing on these and on these businesses. And so the thesis around Evolution Capital Partners was 
what I call the capital gap, which was businesses that weren't sexy enough to be venture or large enough or professional enough to be you know, traditional private equity. And you could see that in the valuations where you know, back then there was $400 billion of uninvested private equity capital commitments and the valuations were kind of you know six times or seven times really on the high end of the range and venture you know were also ridiculous valuations but in in that little niche the niche where evolution focuses today it never really changes it was always kind of four times Hmm. uh four times trailing 12 months operating cash flow and the reason it never really changes is because the capital markets meaning the lenders and and the debt capital doesn't really participate in that market, which creates a lot of the fluctuation that you see up in, in the middle market. Um, you know, today that, that uninvested committed capital is closer to a trillion dollars. So that six to seven times premium you were seeing back 15 years ago in 2004 and five, uh, was, is now like nine or 10 times because there's so much capital and what's it doing is driving down returns or what's acceptable for a great return. Whereas in our market, it's exactly the same as it was 15 years ago where you're still buying and selling or buying companies at four times. And hopefully if you do a good job, you're getting that arbitrage and selling that an eight times multiple or nine times multiple on, on a higher EBITDA. And as your market continues to stay constant like that or consistent, but you know, there's this, this uncommitted capital, as you're mentioning a trillion dollars elsewhere, the obvious would say, well, then why aren't others jumping into the niche that you have or are they? Uh, they're, they're not. I think that a lot of people thought that that was what was going to happen. But what's really happened is, is the alternative investment market, the private equity market, has historically always been more of a mom and pop and cottage industry. I mean, a large private equity fund, you know, has seven to ten million of, of revenue. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. Now, obviously, you have the KKRs of the world and the Black Rocks and the Blackstones, and and they have kind of ridiculous business models. Um, but it's that trillion dollars of uninvested private equity capital has created this inertia where they can't afford to do smaller deals because small deals take the same time as larger deals and they need to get capital to work uh, in as efficient manner as possible. They can't invest in 50 deals. Uh, You know, they really have to invest in, you know, uh, eight to, to 12 deals uh, in a particular fund. And so they're looking for opportunities where they're putting, you know, 50 to hundred million dollars to work, which is well above the area where we are, where we're writing kind of five, $8 million checks in, in the deals that, that we're doing. And, you know, if you look at the traditional private equity model, it is, and it has always been more about um, using the capital markets, uh, about governance, uh, about you know M and A uh, follow-on acquisitions, and that sort of thing. And that's really how they've been driving returns. Now they've certainly added operating partners, uh, you know, to help add some expertise in operating efficiencies and that sort of thing, but. 
but the model is really the same. What investors are accepting now is lower returns. What we do is just much more fundamental. I mean, the thing that's holding the companies back that we invest in is really just a lack of the important fundamentals that larger companies are already doing, like uh, developing accurate and timely financial reporting and strategic planning and having a middle management team and and accountability and a, and a repeatable sales process. Those are things that larger businesses kind of do automatically. The smaller businesses just don't do, and that's why they're small. So we're kind of the farm system for the big leagues where if we – can get them to adopt our methodology, the five fundamental methodology, quote unquote, get certified, then it's amazing how the revenue and the opportunity are unlocked and that they're much more attractive to institutional buyers. Yeah, that makes sense. And so speaking of all of that and then thinking to your entrepreneurship work right now on the board at Miami, which I get to fortunately do with you, but you do a lot with Miami. You, like I mentioned earlier, I mean, you're a Miami merger um, with your wife. You've got a, a son at Miami. You've led this Cleveland development board for Miami and now the entrepreneurship. What, what's Miami mean to you? And 25 years out of college, why, why are you still doing that back at your university? Well, I hate to age myself, but my uh, 30-year high school reunion is tomorrow. So yep. I know exactly how long it's been since I was in Miami. And, um, you know, it, it, Miami is just really important. And I actually um, still get emotional about Miami because it was kind of a a beacon for me to uh, move forward as a teenager. And I, I think everybody knows that. You know, being 12, 13, 14, 15 years old stinks anyway. Uh, but, you know, we moved as part of a, I was kind of a corporate brat. We moved eight times by the time I was in high school and my parents are divorced. And, and my freshman year in high school, I was a bit of a basket case. Unfortunately, my older brother was a great student and went to Miami. And when we were dropping him off, uh, you know, I was like, Oh my God, this is like incredible. You know, what do my grades have to be to get in here? And everybody was just kind of like patting me on the back saying, you know, you have another future. <laughs> it's not going to be <laughs> what you need a while. And, uh, but it, 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 it really was that, that, thing that I needed to kind of get me unstuck, to kind of get me out of the self-pity and the doldrums that I was feeling at that time in my life and just became larger than life and what I needed to do to kind of be the person that I wanted to be. And so I became a four point, not not a four point, but nearly so student for three years to get my grades where they needed to be so that Miami would accept me. And getting into Miami was not just like, you know, getting into any other college. For me, it was just kind of affirmation of what I had done and what I wanted to be. And so I continued to feel that, um, you know, Miami can do that for other people. And I think it does it, you know, for me today, uh, not that I'm thinking about uh, applying to Miami again, although I'd love to <laughs> relive those four years, but it really reminds me that if I can set a goal 
uh, even if it's even if that time is unrealistic as Miami seems to everybody else, that I could do it if I really, really applied myself. And I've reapplied myself over and over and over again throughout my career. And I really it really all goes back to, you know, Miami. Uh, and, and so now that I'm in a position where I can either be helpful with internships or hiring or, uh, engaging with alums or bringing money to the university to me, uh, that's all incredibly rewarding because Miami either knowingly or unknowingly has given me so much. Mm. And when you were in school and we all spent plenty of time uptown and probably not as much time in King library, but what else, what else during those four years? I mean, clearly you said from the very beginning, just the international experience opened your eyes and set a path and yeah, striving towards a goal and reaching it and getting into Miami seems like that action plan has stayed with you forever. Was there a, and you met your wife there. Was there a class, a professor, just the opportunity to have your own college town? Anything else that draws you back besides the countless friendships that, of course, you and we have from school? Yeah, you know, as you pointed out, David, obviously the most important thing was that I met my wife there. And uh, and that obviously has paid dividends, you know, for you know 25 years or so now. Um, you know, and I did everything I wanted to do. I was in a farmer school and I was a finance major. As we discussed, I was in the Luxembourg program and I joined a fraternity, uh, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And so I really felt like, you know, where I was in my life at that time, you know, I did everything that I wanted to do. Of course, when you're 48 years old, as I am today, you always think you could have done more and taken advantage of more things that Miami has to offer because it has a lot to offer. Um, but I'll tell you the one professor that really had a huge impact on my life is a guy named John Altman. Uh, he just gave a bunch of money to the farmer school to support the entrepreneurship program, I was, if I wasn't in the first class, I was in the second class. I mean, was, this is back in like 1992. And, uh, even before that, John Altman had been the, the, uh, the keynote speaker, if you will, at the graduation from my older brother who had graduated in 1991 uh, or 1990, excuse me. And uh, I was so impressed with what John had to say. And I took his class and I was just more taken with everything that he was trying to convey and teach, you know, to, to us. Uh, and then beyond that, you know, he really helped me uh, try to help uh, find a job for me after, after college. And, and I kept up with him for, for many years and we lost touch and I've more recently reengaged, but John Altman was somebody that uh, uh, Miami ought to be really, really proud of. I mean, obviously it, Miami had a huge impact on him and not only uh, has he given a, a, you know, a ton of time back to the school, but he's given financially back to the school and to specifically, you know, to the entrepreneurship program where you and I serve on, uh, on the board. Uh, so he was just instrumental in getting me, 
you know, to think out of the box. And even though at LaSalle and Prudential and some of these other places, I was in more of a corporate environment, I was thinking entrepreneurially. I was thinking out of the box and I was thinking um, and and capitalizing on, on opportunity and taking risks that didn't necessarily mean that they were going to work out. And I, I probably spend more time talking about my failures than my successes, but he really got me to think differently. And, uh, and so that, for that reason, he really sticks out in my mind as an important contributor to who I am today. I, I point to Altman every time someone asks me the question to, Marketing 467, maybe the only class I actually can remember the the number behind <laughs> it. But you know, having to create your own airline uh, company and then compete against others, and uh, he was great. So in, in the same thinking there, and what he taught you, what what do you tell a kid? Um, and it's not just a kid, but how do you prepare someone who's 17, 18, going into college or 21, that they're about to walk into a four-year academic experience, which is what college, part of what college is, but knowing that on the business side, there are some business fundamentals and principles you got you get out of academia, but the entrepreneurship side, the Altman side of what you're saying is also really important. So to help them flourish in the future. So what do you you recommend to those students in terms of how to learn, what to read, and maybe how to intern to set themselves up for more than just the principles too? That's a great question. Um, you know, look, I, I can say hard work. Uh, you know, when people say to me that they're hard workers, I really discount it because I just don't think people uh, are willing to. And it's, this isn't a generational thing. I think there's plenty of young people that are willing to go crazy and work really hard. But you really have to work uh, extraordinarily hard. I mean, people today, you know, taking a conference call at nine o'clock at night on the week or at 7 a.m. on the weekend is just kind of normal course. And if you're really going to be successful, it becomes your lifestyle. And I think that would be an important thing, not only to take into your work life, but also if you want to take everything in that. Miami has to offer, it has to be your lifestyle. You have to get up early and be able to grind it out and you will uh, benefit uh, multiples of that uh, later in life. I think being a continuous learner uh, is, is really, really important. I've gone on to get my graduate degree, but beyond that, you know, I continue to get certifications. I continue to take classes. I continue to do things to get better and better and better. Uh, and really, again, as a small business owner, it's really never stop moving. Uh, you got to keep moving and make things happen because if you don't make it happen, it's just not going to. And so if I were to take hard work, continuous learning and never stop moving, I would say the same thing to an 18 year old going into Miami University, that if you take those three things and you go into Miami uh, with that attitude, then you will get all of that and more, um, you know, when when you you leave there. Uh, Miami is great because I think it really strikes the right balance between, you know, the academic and learning and engaging with other people, but also, you know, the Midwestern values and the sociability that, 
uh, all Miamians seem to have where they're able to engage with all sorts of socioeconomic classes uh, of people, I think is really what sets Miami apart. It's really the right balance. It's not too academic and it's not too social and it's certainly driven. And the combination of all that, I think, is what makes Miami's formula for success as evidenced by all the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of successful Miamians out there. Just a great lesson on finance, investments, and the capital market. I've always enjoyed listening and learning from Jeff. Class act. He was a class act at Miami and still is today. When we sit in those entrepreneurship board meetings, I just sit back and listen. Smart things come out of his mouth every single time. And I definitely am going to have a beer or two with Cadillac at Skippers real soon. Hope to have a beer with you guys too. Have a great day. Thanks for listening.